The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. Hi, I'm John Ruffalo. I'm the founder and managing partner of Mavericks Private Equity, and I'm ready to be digging deep. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. And I'm on a quest to learn from the best. Welcome to Digging Deep, presented by Zen Books and Abacus Data. This is the latest in our series of one-on-one conversations with really interesting, thoughtful, accomplished, insightful people from many different fields. On this episode, Maverick investor John Ruffalo on his utterly inspiring and unlikely road back from a near-fatal cycling crash. So, in September of 2020, John Ruffalo had a lot to be proud of, and even more to look forward to. He could look back on a stellar career at the highest levels of Canada's financial sector. As the head of Omer's Ventures, the technology investment arm of one of the country's largest pension funds, he had made hugely successful investments in a wide range of companies, including Shopify and Hootsuite. And now, Ruffalo was preparing to launch his own fund. It was to be a $500 million growth equity fund called Mavericks Private Equity. And he'd spent two years developing the plan. He'd lined up support from banks, from pension funds, and from all-star investors, including Arlene Dickinson and Jim Balsillie. John had always been an avid cyclist, and he'd been taking advantage of the pandemic to go on some long bike rides outside of Toronto. And sometimes he would ride for 100 kilometers or more on a weekday afternoon. That's what he was planning to do on September 2nd. But about 40 kilometers into the ride, he was struck by a transport truck and was thrown into the air. We're going to hear from John with his description of what happened after that. But emergency personnel were not sure he would survive. And when he finally woke up, he was told he would never walk again. The next eight months were an incredible journey of pain, resilience, fierce willpower, and recovery. And through it all, John has been determined not just to recover, but to get back on his bike, and also to follow through on launching Mavericks, his investment fund. In our conversation, John shares the harrowing details of what he remembers from the crash. He actually remembers quite a lot. He talks about the physical and mental tools that he has drawn on in his recovery and the new perspective he has on pain. He shares what it was like the first time he felt the sun on his face again, the first time he touched the faces of his children after the crash. He shares his plans for his new fund, why he was so determined to follow through on that, even as he was recovering, and how he makes decisions about where to invest. And he also talks about fishing with his good friend, David Suzuki. There's a lot in this conversation that I think you are going to find powerful, moving, and inspiring. One last thing before we get started. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Digging Deep and post a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and share this podcast with your network. And if you're looking for more information on the podcast, please go to letsdigdeep.com. Now, Let's start digging deep with the incredibly inspiring and utterly unstoppable founder of Mavericks Private Equity, 
John Ruffalo. John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's I got to tell you, it's really inspiring to have the opportunity to hear your story firsthand. I've been reading about you. You and I met a few years ago at an event, uh, and you offered such great investing advice and wisdom about the work that you do. And we're going to explore that a little bit too. But uh, your personal story is uh, over the last eight, nine months is just really so inspiring. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Good. Thank you. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit with our rapid fire questions. Uh, when you look back on your childhood, what is your fondest memory? What comes to mind? Um, I would say the fondest memory is uh, when I grew up, uh, I am a child of immigrant parents that lived in a neighborhood and area of all other immigrant parents, mostly from Italy. And uh, growing up was all about food and family. And it was a little bit of a uh, surprise to me as I was growing up, realizing that I wasn't actually in living in Italy. Uh, I was living in North America and you are just so cocooned in this small little world. Uh, as I broke out of that and uh, opened my eyes, I just realized there was a much bigger world out there. Wow. You were, you were like on a, on a little patch in North America that was actually a part of Italy in a way. <laughs> well, and the issue is, and it's, it's quite fascinating to see, is that for many of my friends' parents, many didn't uh, even bother to learn Italian, uh, English rather, yeah. And it's because they relied upon one another, lar largely for survival. Uh, and, and so uh, because of that cocooning, it didn't really matter for many of them. But looking back in hindsight, these folks actually all had it right. They lived off the earth. Uh, they uh, ate at home. They ate healthy. Everything was organic. And it's quite interesting to see the world is moving in that direction. And yet I spent my formative years trying to escape that. Hmm. And also, you know, uh, not to stick too much on the first question here, but I'd find it interesting that, you know, the, the community there, right. That now we live in a world where you're just as likely to know somebody halfway around the world as your next door neighbor. Whereas those communities that you describe were they really supported each other. They knew each other. Everybody knew everyone who lived on the block. They looked out for each other. Uh, that's, that's was an essential part of community then, wasn't it? Yes. And it was, it was, it was a part of survival. Yeah. You know, to this day, you know, I, I, my, my parents, when they see my buying habits, they just shudder. And I look at them and I just thought they were being cheap. But what ended up happening was at the time, the things that they were doing were essential for their survival and to support the family. But it just so turned out that food and family were at the core of their lifestyle. And it's now me, you know, now getting to be their ages, uh, I realized that I'm trying to get back to exactly what they were doing, but finding it extraordinarily difficult to do so. 
Who was your hero when you were 10 years old? You know, I, I would say, and, and uh, it wasn't even a, it's not a religious thing because I, 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 I was born and raised as a, as a Roman Catholic, but uh, I was influenced by uh, Pope John Paul, if you remember, and it was only because it was the first time I actually saw this Pope going out and reaching out to the world as this great humanitarian. And uh, I was just more fascinated by what he was doing. Very similarly, when I started seeing that and then started to learn about Dalai Lama, I felt the same way. And then, you know, when we started to hear more about Nelson Mandela, felt the same way. So I just discovered in my life, there's a big pattern of heroes that I have that really went against the grain, uh, that are the non-conformists, are the ones that people mocked, are the ones that struggled very, very deeply, and in, in many cases for their own lives. And is it's not a secret why the name of our firm is called Mavericks. These were all Mavericks. And that's what has influenced me. And I would say, you know, when I go to the sports world, as another example, uh, another person who really influenced me was Muhammad Ali. Mm. Not for his boxing prowess solely, although uh, I loved it. I loved how this guy who, as I understand it, was not very well educated and all of a sudden became this great communicator. And what he did for, for the black movement, uh, when there was no movement, it, yeah. you know, uh, really, I mean, there was, there was the, some movement in, in, in the United States, but it was very limited. But when I saw what he did, like, you just were blown away on the lumps this guy was getting and he would just he would just not get angry about it, at least not 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 publicly. Yeah. So again, there's a thread across all of these folks that I've discovered now as I got older, what that commonality is. Incredible. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I thought it was going to be three things. Uh, so when I was six years old, uh, I read. Uh, it, it was called the Martin's Criminal Code. So I started reading what the law was, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer up until I was in grade 11. Um, and then uh, uh, in, I think it was in grade 12 uh, when I was 16, I got a job uh, at the Bank of Montreal originally as a teller, and then by 17, so I was in grade 12, um, I was managing a bank and while I was in high school. So this is when, you know, you had those eight to eight hours and you needed two managers to run a bank. And I had the Thursday, Friday, Saturday responsibilities. So then I thought I'm going to go into financial services, but at the same time in grade 11, grade 12, I took my first accounting courses and I loved, um, I, I was very strong on that. So Long story short, uh, when I when I started working full time, I I 
I chose to go the accounting route because I just loved it. Um, I spent a lot of time in financial services and then I ended up in tax law. So it was the three things mm. all together. It all fit together in the end. <laughs> all together. Yeah. And to this day, that's what I, that's who I am. And, and, you know, the thing that's actually influenced me is that it started at six years old. And this is why I say that in terms of our educational programs, you know, you don't want to necessarily stream people that early. However, um, it just goes to show where you can be influenced. And it influenced me on shaping the direction for my kids, not forcing them. Right. But, you know, I read those clues right at the early age, see where the interests are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was manipulating their direction. I haven't achieved exactly what I wanted, but that's what influenced Mm. me to do the same. What would you say is your life story in six words? My life story. I would say swimming up against the current. Okay. For what do you feel most grateful? Uh, If you ask me today, uh, I feel most grateful for talking with you right now because that wasn't so clear seven months ago. Um, but, but aside from that, I am most grateful, uh, uh, for having a family, um, and, and enjoying my life in much more simpler ways. Uh, and I would say that is a shift as I got older. I was looking for more complicated ways Mm. to live my life and then realized the real fun and the real satisfaction was getting down to the most simplistic elements of life, which funny enough, it's my parents, it's family and it's food. And those are the two things that give me the greatest pleasure. Isn't that interesting? Because I think we we all do that over the course of our lives. We we accumulate and then we edit it down, right? Uh, and yes. get back to basics at some point. So that's really powerful. But yeah, and what happens too is that, you know, typically, and it's not everybody, but I know I did this. I set my goals based on material uh, accumulation of uh, basically net wealth. And then you start moving the goalposts. Yeah. And then you start to realize, hmm, uh, I, I seem to be moving it all the time. And then as you get older and you have the ability to assess, you start to realize, well, wait, wait a minute here. Uh, the goalposts are just fine. And in fact, the goalposts are far more than what you ever, uh, need. Your wants might be high, but your needs are so low. So I would just simply say with my age, I've realized what my needs are as opposed to my wants. So I asked these two questions of, of everyone on the podcast. Um, uh, you've just been through in the last year, uh, an incredibly life-changing experience, obviously. So I, maybe the answers are obvious to these questions, uh, or maybe they're not, but I always ask what's been the best year of your life so far and why what's been the toughest year of your life so far and why what would you what would you say to those two questions? 
Um, I would say 2020 was both the best and the worst. Um, the worst, of course, is for obvious reasons. I mean, uh, COVID and then being run over by a tractor trailer, it's tough to get much, much worse than that. But it's also been the best time of my life for, uh, I mean, for, for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but it's the best because it forced me to really zero in on what is most important. And I am so grateful that my children have a father again and that my wife, uh, you know, ha has a husband. Um, and I've also at the same time realized around November, December, that I was going to actually realize my life's work dream in that Mavericks was going to happen. And so, you know, it's, it's rather ironic that I found both in the same year. Mm. What one person has had the greatest impact on your life? Um, I would say uh, in terms of, uh, aside from, you know, my, my, my family, I would say it's David Suzuki. Uh, I am the vice chairman of the David Suzuki Foundation. And uh, David and I have been uh, partners, uh, Jesus now, maybe 15-ish years. And he was really the first person outside of my family to influence what I just described to you about separating your needs and wants. And when you get to know him and to really understand his motivations, it's, it's quite unbelievable that you have, you know, this brilliant scientist who could have just been a wealthy man, a uh, huge career, et cetera, and gave it all up because he wanted to change the world. And the, the, the way how he did it uh, was also impressive in that, what people don't really appreciate is, although he's an incredible scientist and unbelievably smart on so many topics, what he really is, is an effective communicator. Very and true. He is able to distill extremely complex con concepts into simple ways on how to communicate to the average person. And, and then I think what he would say if you were interviewing him, I've influenced him kind of the other way in that um, I helped him understand more so the, the, the current capitalist system that we're currently operating on and how to uh, look at it and try to take advantage and weaponize it to achieve your objective. So one simple example is carbon taxes, which is a very right wing, purely economic 101, factoring in all externalities. This was up until 20 years ago, a right wing from a political perspective yeah. agenda item. And yeah. I don't know how it happened, both the Republicans and the conservatives in Canada lost it and handed it over to either the Democrats or the, the left of center. 
And, and, you know, it's amazing how that happened, but let's use, you know, the carbon taxes again, um, explaining to David how important it is as an investor so that you can make the prudent investment decisions and the right ones because all costs are factored in. And then you'll start to see the movement by the business community to do the things that you really wanted them to do. And, and, and so while I influenced him moving more to that economic front, he's grounds me all the time and has taught me so much. And the, the greatest joy that him and I have is when we go fishing together and it's just magical and it, it gets you down to the purity of life. Wow. I, I, I'm just picturing that. That sounds fantastic. And yes. what a what a great friendship because you learn something from each other, right? And you and and you know, it comes back to that idea that you learn more from people who maybe have a different uh, set of experiences from you or a different mindset from you than you do from someone who Absolutely. has exactly the same mindset, right? So Incredible. Again, that's kind of the maverick thing. It's hard yeah. to do, but I do. If you were to see who, uh, you know, are my friends, I have folks right across the political spectrum mm. from the extreme right to the extreme left. And you, you know what? The commonality is we all love our family and we love the planet Earth, right? And we love to fish and we love to do all that wonderful stuff. There is no difference right across the spectrum. And the only difference is, is in the method and how you want to achieve it, right? So when you start to strip that all away, we all want the exact same things. And yet we just fight with each other, thinking the other side is evil. And yet it's only the methodology on achieving it. I wish and I pray that one day the politicians will all start to realize that, stop to worry about where they're going to get their next job from and realize it. We're all in this together. Yeah, and let's great figure point. it out. That's yeah. it. And everybody has, almost everybody has the best of intentions, even if they don't have Absolutely. the best way of, of trying to achieve Absolutely. it. Absolutely. What would you say is the most important lesson that you've learned that you would want to share with other people? I would say the most important thing, and uh, it can cause you pain as well. Um, and it's really about authenticity. And again, I would say David Suzuki was one of the great people that despite everyone telling you otherwise uh, and saying you can't do it, saying you're, you know, it's too big of a problem, all those sorts of things, it just gets me more agitated to prove you wrong. So is there a bit of a chip on my shoulder? Absolutely there is, right? And I, I, I thought that that was a negative and, and realized, yeah, you know what? It's not perfect and I do have that chip, but if I could harness that chip for good and for positivity, but being authentic about it. So 
I will say a bunch of things that people don't like. I'm not saying it because I'm trying to harm someone or try. I'm just telling the truth. So you'll get the truth from me, whether you like it or not. And at the end of the day, uh, the way that I kind of think is that if I could get, you know, 50.1% of the people uh, uh, appreciating that and, 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 and trying to help and pissing off 49.9, I've done my job. And if you don't piss off people, then you're not trying hard enough, frankly. Great point. Very interesting. Uh, is there a book that has had a huge impact on you? Is there one book that you're most likely to recommend to other people? Um, you know, it's funny. I have, I'm just looking at my massive book collection and how few I actually read in, in full. Um, but one that I've recommended uh, to lots of folks, I, I love uh, geopolitics. Uh, and the most influential book as an investor uh, is uh, a book uh, written by Peter Zahan. And he is uh, a geopoliticist uh, uh, living in, in Texas. And uh, he's written a, a couple of books. And you know what? I'm having a brain cramp right now, and I'll Google it later. Um, but he has helped me, uh, and particularly through his book, uh, oh, uh, the, super, the, the title has Superpower, and it's a... Yeah, I'm uh, looking it up right now. Accidental yeah, yeah. Help, superpower. help me out on that one there. Uh, but it's There's basic, the, the accidental superpower. The accidental superpower, that's it. And then okay. he's written a follow-up book uh, as well. But basically what he's done is that he's helped me not look at the obvious. And when you read this book, you will see how he will string together seemingly uncorrelated uh, uh, issues and creating a thesis on perhaps where the world is going. And uh, his predictions were unbelievable in terms of the rise of Donald Trump. And what does that, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 uh, probably the biggest issue is around the safety of the world's waterways and what that will do to global supply chains uh, and where will be the greatest hostilities. And I just never thought, oh yeah, right. If, if you know, A, B, C, D, E, F happens uh, and those, and finding those uh, seemingly uncorrelated issues to help you uh, Think about the world so that when you make your investment decisions, it's not to really predict what's going to happen, but really trying to create optionalities so that you don't get caught. So one case in point, he helped me think through that I, part of my Mavericks uh, thesis was I predicted, and I did that starting in 2016, and said in the second half of 2020, the world will go through a global recession. 
And it was based on population pyramids and population demographics, which I still believe in. Hmm. Now, I did not know that the trigger was going to be a virus. Uh, but as an example, I pulled out of the markets quite significantly uh, in lieu of this 2020 uh, coming coming to roost. And again, uh, who the heck knew it was going to be a virus? Yeah. And, 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 but the conditions are still theirs, but we have one country in the world being the United States that's printing money beyond anything that we've ever seen. And since 2008, who would have thought they would be doing this for 12 or 13 years now? And so, so trying to understand that the why, et cetera, and, and really looking at our economic underpinnings have never been so weak. And it's quite amazing to see that with the printing of money and the availability of capital, the stock markets are going through great heights, but you're seeing the massive non-correlation of the stock markets with the real markets. And it's right. fascinating to so see. There, there's a disconnect there, obviously. It's, yeah. it, it was a disconnect starting in 2008. I thought it would reconnect and boy, you know, 13 years later, but wow. that whole thing was in this accidental superpower. And, Interesting. It, and, and I, you know, now that I've launched, I'm bringing back Peter to be one of our economic advisors to help us think that way. Your ultimate conclusion, who the hell cares? Because it's just your point of view. But when you watch or read how he came to his conclusion is, I've never seen anybody do it like this before. All right. Well, John, thank you for answering those questions. Uh, there is so much more to get into in your story. And we're going to do that after a short pause. We'll take a break and we will continue digging deep with... John Ruffalo. We're just going to take a quick break so I can tell you a little bit more about the presenting sponsor of Digging Deep, ZenBooks. ZenBooks is Canada's go-to cloud accounting firm. They are not your typical accounting firm. I know the founders, Colin and Eric. I've worked with them for several years. And here's why I think you should consider working with them too. First of all, they bring a fresh, unique, modern approach to what is a very old-fashioned industry. These guys were working remotely and in the cloud long before it became cool. ZenBooks also uses technology to your advantage. I think this is really important. They give you the tools and analysis you need to monitor your business in real time. That's so valuable right now when everything changes so quickly. Yes, they're a virtual accounting firm, but that doesn't mean they're offshore, and it doesn't mean they're inattentive. ZenBooks combines the efficiency and effectiveness of a cloud accounting service with all the benefits that you'd want from a trusted advisor, high-level advice, and strategic support. Now, here's what I think is going to happen if you work with ZenBooks. You'll probably start out taking advantage of their cutting-edge cloud accounting solutions, but in the long run, I think you'll stay with them because of their strategic guidance and problem solving. Among their core values, they specifically list being candid and proactive. Isn't that exactly what you want from a trusted advisor? 
Look, even if you're already working with an accountant or a bookkeeper, or you have some accounting staff on your team, I think you should still talk to ZenBooks and learn more about their tools and their expertise. Check out ZenBooks at zenbooks.ca. That's zenbooks.ca. Digging Deep is all about helping you make better decisions, and so is Abacus Data. Most leaders struggle to connect with and engage their audiences. Why is that? It's because they aren't sure how they think and feel and how they will react. Abacus Data can give you the strategic insights you need to make better decisions and to make them confidently. Here's a good example. A major national union was recently negotiating a new agreement for its thousands of members. This had the potential to be a very difficult process. There were many competing interests. So they brought in Abacus Data to conduct thorough and detailed research of their members to learn exactly where they stood, what they were thinking, what they wanted. And as a result, they were able to secure a strong new deal that was accepted overwhelmingly in a national vote. Abacus Data helps all of its clients understand what's really happening in the minds of their employees, clients, and stakeholders. They help them avoid costly blind spots. And they're really good at what they do. In fact, Abacus Data was one of the most accurate pollsters in the 2019 Canadian federal election. Make the one decision that will improve all of your other decisions. Let Abacus Data help you move forward with confidence and clarity. Go to abacusdata.ca. That's abacusdata.ca. So, John, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to describe what happened to you on September 2nd of last year. Uh, But before we get into more detail about that, uh, the last seven or eight months, you have been recovering from that uh, and you have been you know, you started out fighting for your life and then and then going into a period of of recovery and rebuilding uh, your body. And at the same time, you've been building and launching a company, uh, which I think is just extraordinary how all of this has happened on such a short timeline. So are you just really, really stubborn? <laughs> is that is that part of the story here? stupid maybe uh you can use many different adjectives but yes um you know what was kind of you know funny is in and and i really share this more with people who knew me better um but even when you know the first uh uh wall that i hit where i had a financial partner and then you know, they, they, you know, changed course rather abruptly on me. Uh, And then, you know, it took me, you know, 17 minutes to get pissed off. And then I made my next call. Um, And I had to, you know, and and the investors, the, who I called were kind of surprised saying, I thought you already had a partner. And then I explained that, oh, you know, that's off the table. And, uh, I describe myself as a cockroach and they're like, what, like, what are you doing that for? And I said, well, maybe it's a bad analogy, but 
I, 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 I believe this. And it's, again, it's based on my upbringing, you know, growing up in a neighborhood that was a very difficult neighborhood, but I loved every minute of it. You know, when there's a nuclear war, what survives is the cockroach. And you could, you know, you could step on it. You could do all these things to a cockroach and goddamn, those things just continue to, to move. It's a little like me uh, that I thought, and, you know, I, I kind of joke about it until I got hit by the tractor trailer and four different top physicians all said the same thing. Uh, I never really went through the full list of all of my injuries. And, uh, and, and frankly, the reason is I actually didn't understand a lot of the injuries, only on the big injuries. And then one of my very close friends, um, I said to him, can you do me a favor? Can I go through my hospital report right after the, you know, the first assessment of my injuries? Could, could you explain to me what these things are? And there's eight uh, massive categories of injuries. I went through the first one and the, each category of injury has a dozen injuries in yeah. that category, okay? So yeah. I went through the first dozen. I didn't even finish the first one. And he's looking at me and he said, and this is a top doctor in Toronto. And he said, John, I am, you know, well-trained in this area. And he says, I'm not even through the first one. You are dead on impact. And the other four or the other three doctors said the same thing. They do not understand why it wasn't dead on impact. Uh, and they're very surprised that I don't know how many minutes I was unconscious. Uh, it wasn't long, you know, it maybe was five minutes. I, who, who, who knows? Um, but the paramedic saw me not only trying to move, but I was trying to get up and I was trying to get up by lifting my, uh, using my left forearm to lift me up not knowing that my back and my front is completely shattered and nothing was moving. Uh, but I was still, you know, trying to kick yeah. myself anyways. Uh, that is kind of what I meant about being a cockroach, but you know, God, I would never expect me to actually show you that way. So, you know, I, I, I just immediately thought of my wife and my kids and I thought there is no way I am going to die here and I'm not going to die this way. And I don't give a shit what runs me over. Um, and, and again, uh, you know, and I, I think I mentioned this in an article when I finally was, lucid enough to understand what the heck happened. And by the way, I never knew that I was at death's door. Um, it was about eight days after the accident. And this is when I'm now the, the tubes are out of my mouth. I can actually uh, talk. I'm in a room. And that's when they told me that I've been diagnosed with the worst uh, assessment of paralysis, which is called an Asia, a complete injury. And I'm like, okay, well, what the hell does that mean? And they said, I'm really sorry, but you're never, ever going to walk again. And um, 
they knew, and my wife was, was in the room when they told me, uh, they left the room and, and my wife is the same way. Uh, I think I sobbed for, I don't know, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And then my first reaction was, fuck you. You're not going to tell me that. Like, like, no. And my wife said the same thing. And our reaction really was as being a tech guy, I am going to pursue every technological innovation, stem cells, you name it. And I'll show you guys that that's not going to happen. And, no. and, and again, there's that cockroach reaction and, and it's obviously a defensive reaction, but I have been busting my butt to prove them all wrong. And, you know, and, and, you know, they weren't being mean to me uh, by any stretch. They were just trying to be honest. And, sure. and uh, but, but what I've also learned and no one knows what happens when you have a spinal cord victim. They have no clue still. Yeah. Absolutely zero. Right. Yeah. So but what I'm, what I'm seeing is you're, you're, it's almost like Michael Jordan. I don't know if you watched that documentary about Michael Jordan, the last dance, but he constantly looked for inspiration and motivation from what other people were telling him or saying about him and turning it around and proving them wrong. Yes. And I think that's what you've done here. So can you, can you walk through exactly what happened on September 2nd? Uh, you, you, you're, you were an avid cyclist. Yes. Uh, you rode in long distance challenges, you rode your bike yep. with friends. And so you yep. were, you were often out on your bike. And on this particular day, uh, it went tragically wrong, of course. Yeah, you know, the, the bit of the irony was that I'm not sure if we didn't have COVID, whether that would have happened or not. Because, um, you know, I would ride uh, four or five days a week, sometimes in, in my Peloton, but as a cyclist, you want to get out there on the road, right? And I would typically in, you know, when, when, when I'm working uh, full time, you know, you, you can't get long rides in during the middle of the week. Um, and so my long rides would always be on the weekend and typically up north of the city in Toronto where there's little traffic. During COVID, when traffic was down, I would I would go ride on Wednesdays by myself because it's COVID, right? And and I would go for typically an 80 to 100K ride. And this was just one, another Wednesday. And I had been doing this consistently for a, the, the six months uh, during COVID from March to September and kind of going the same way out of the city. I was always paranoid about the, drivers in Toronto. So I would try to, I found a perfect route, how to get out most efficiently out into the country. And on this particular day, beautiful, gorgeous day, it's about, you know, between uh, 1230 and one and uh, sunny. And the safest way that I would get out of the city was through this route that you go basically north of the Toronto Zoo. And I was heading to Stouffville, uh, which was about 50 kilometers from my house. I'd take a break there 
and then I do a loop back down. So it was, I, I was intending to go for a hundred kilometers and I was feeling great that day. I was feeling very fast. And, um, as I was about five kilometers away from Stouffville, um, out of the blue, and I'm very cognizant of drivers, uh, and out of the blue, I just hear the screaming noise of a truck's air brakes going off right in the back of my left ear. And I got to tell you, my first reaction was, who is this stupid jackass that's riding right on my wheel. And, you know, part of the issue is, and I'm going to get this stuff changed. For some bizarre reason, truck drivers have an issue with cyclists. I don't know what it is. And you ask any cyclist, and it's not usually large trucks. It's, it's frankly midsize vehicles. And they try to get close to you and try to scare you and making some point. And all these tough guys try to do that get out of the truck and come and do that to my face, which of course they will never do. So I was just kind of thinking, is this another one doing that and trying to intimidate me on a bicycle? And then boom, it hit me on the back. And I felt that. And, uh, and, and do you actually remember that? Oh yeah. No, I felt the impact. Oh yeah. No, yeah. I felt because I, a lot of people who go through this kind of trauma, the last thing they remember is, is 10 minutes before it happened. Oh right? no, but no, like, yeah. I didn't hit my, I, well, I did hit my head apparently. And I must have a hard head uh, because my, my skin was shaved off on my forehead as well too. Um, but I, no, I remember the impact on my back. What I don't remember is then flying through the air uh, and then landing. And I, my guess is I was unconscious on the impact from my back, didn't know, don't recall flying through the air and do not recall the impact, which caused a huge amount of damage on my front part of my body um, a, a, as well. And all I remember afterwards is again, trying to get up after a paramedic was asking me if I would like to make a phone call, which we did to, to my wife. And then uh, ambulance coming, I remember very quickly, but I'll tell you, man, I remember the ride, the full ride in a stretcher, which is not intended to be a bed, uh, rolling me on my back. My back is shattered and feeling every single bump with my spinal cord exposed where it hit me, on, it shattered my T12 vertebrae and feeling every single bump for 25 minutes. If, if people have had pain, I will guarantee you that most people would not have felt that pain for 25 minutes. And I, I wasn't kidding when I said, I said to the paramedics, I apologize in advance, but I am going to swear every single word that comes out of my mouth. And the guy said, swear away. And I just couldn't believe the pain. Uh, and that was the 25 minutes right to emergency. And I remember seeing the Sunnybrook emergency sign, looking up and seeing it. And then they slammed a gas mask right on me. And then I was out. So you talked about that 
20 seconds when, when they, after they told you uh, that you weren't going to walk again, and then the determination that kicked in after that, can you describe some of what your recovery has been like? And I know you've taken on an incredible fitness regimen, you've, you know, and you've been driven by this extraordinary uh, passion, this extraordinary, uh, you know, determination and, and almost an insistence that you're going to fully recover from this. So what has that taken? What has that process been like, both physically and mentally? Um, yeah, I mean, it's great intensity. Uh, it's five or six days a week, three hours a day, uh, some of the days are unbelievably grueling and ex- uh, you're in constant pain. And when you move your, uh, try to move your legs in a manner that you thought you could, uh, you have to get through pain that uh, I had a high tolerance for pain, but this pain is constant the pain never goes away and I hope it goes away at some point. So you've got to fight mentally through the pain before you can actually try to do the things that you want to do. The one so, thing. So that, are you in pain right now? Yeah, absolutely. Am. Wow. It's about a three out of 10 right now. So you can't see it. Uh, but I didn't realize this. I didn't realize, I didn't know what nerve pain was by the way. And boy, do I know what that is now. That's probably the worst pain. I have had, you know, lots of accidents, uh, particularly on the bike. And uh, I know what muscle and, and bone pain feels like. And I, I could take it with the best of them. But nerve pain, oh, my God. Uh, I, re- I, I, I now sympathize with anybody that says they have nerve pain. And, and there's almost nothing that, that, that you can do. So you got to get through that. And sometimes, you know, you try to get meds to help you through. I am on some meds, but at very, very low doses. I did that on purpose. I did that even in hospital because I wanted to feel how my body is reacting and not numbing my pain. So I don't really know. So I may have stupidly suffered more pain than one probably should have. And that was my intention, but God damn that hurt. So once you get through that, you then have to try to retrain your body to do things that you took for granted. And, and, you know, I may look the same, but my body's no longer the same and it will never, ever be the same. However, you're trying to teach your body to get around things that, you know, again, you, you took for granted. The great thing for me, I have zero issue in my upper body. So my upper body is almost getting back to the same strength that I had before the accident. Uh, now on my lower body, th- what's happened is the muscles that you require for cycling turned on first, funny enough. So my body remembered that. So my quads, glutes, and hamstrings have turned on, nothing below my, my knees. And so, I so John, that, that, I mean, that speaks to the value of having been in shape before yes. this happened, right? That's what likely saved me. Mm. Uh, I was in the best shape of my life uh, during COVID because what are you going to do all day, right? So I, I worked out and cycled, you know, I'd say at least four days a week. 
uh, in many weeks, more, more than that. But it was also the upper body strength and my shoulders and my chest. When my, the impact of la uh, landing, that's what, was, that's what should have killed me. And it didn't. And it was because of the shape that I was in. And the part that I didn't realize is what killed me, I, or almost killed me cycling, is what's kind of leading my recovery. And so I, I have mobility in my upper legs, and I have sensitivity uh, all the way almost through my entire legs, including the bottom of my feet. So I can feel stuff. They're different. It doesn't feel the same, but I can feel stuff almost all throughout. And so using that as a basis for a recovery, it's not going back to normal, but it's getting to a point where uh, my life is normalized. What is, no, what is not true is, John, you will never walk again. What could be true is I could walk again, but perhaps aided. Maybe with the grace of God, I might walk again without any aid. Uh, but I've already proven that that's a statement that was sent originally. The doctors who I keep in touch with are astonished at how quickly I've been able to recover at least feeling, mobility, etc., based on their original assessment. And, and that's, is what's different. And again, I don't know where I'm going to end up. And I, I wish, and I pray that uh, I'll be able to walk and particularly cycle again. And I will cycle again. Um, you know, uh, with, would I, that if, be the ultimate, would, yes. would that kind of be the finish line of this journey for you to get on yes. your bike again and get out on the road? Absolutely it is. And that's what I'm gunning for, whether I get it, you know, who the heck knows, but man, I'm trying for it. And that's where I, you know, you, when you ask the question, you have to have the physical, you know, desire, but if you don't have the mental desire, it, it won't happen. And I, I, I believe I will get there. Um, and I'll go through any level of pain, uh, to get through it. It's not, it's not easy, but if your mind is not turned to that, I will tell you, you will fail. And the line of optimism versus depression is extremely narrow. And I've had many folks who have reached out to me, thanking me that they're on the depression side and realized, uh, you know, they needed to be optimistic on it. And they thank me for that optimism. And so I didn't do that on purpose. It's a little bit kind of wired to what your Michael Jordan concept was. I'll prove them wrong. So it goes back to that stubbornness more so than, you know, you know, here you know, when people say, oh, yeah, look, my God, this guy is, you know, uh, is a superman or whatever they're saying. Right. In fact, it's 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 my negative qualities that are moving me over not my positive ones which i kind of find you know i don't really comment on it by going you know guys i'm you know my wife complains on how stubborn i am uh and that i just can't get off a certain piece well this is what's getting me across the you know 
and yeah. hopefully get across the goal line. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like you have to draw on your inner jerk, right. <laughs> to sort of be, to, to, to take this thing on and just yeah. beat the crap out of it. Right. Like yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I joke, but you know, there was one doctor that, uh, you know, did not have the greatest bedside manner. Um, he was meaning well, you know, and again, I, I, there's my chip on my shoulder and he said, I'm sorry, you're never ever going to walk again. And and I was like, I was, I was quite astonished. And this is a different doctor that said that. And uh, the, the, my goal is to walk back in there so I can kick the person in the ass and say, hey, you know, you don't know the answer to what you just said. Don't say that again to anybody. Because what you're doing is you're messing with someone's mind not the physicality. And it was a very dangerous thing for that doctor to do. And to this day, I'm going to prove this person absolutely wrong for, for that comment to me. Hmm. And I think that doctor realized maybe, you know, there's a cockiness to some of the doctors thinking that they know everything right in spinal cord injury. I have the best doctor, certainly in North America, the best surgeon. And the first thing he says to me, and the most experienced, and he said, I don't know. I don't know what, where it's going right. to end up. I do know that if you keep on working to it, you have a higher chance, but I don't know. And that's when I immediately said, I like this guy. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it comes back to, you know, you hear this phrase a lot and it sounds kind of trite and cliched, but um, if you think you're going to succeed or you think you're going to fail, you're right. Yes. Right. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. The, the only thing I'll say, John, is is maybe when you get to the finish line of this, uh, you're actually going to want to thank this guy, because even though he was wrong, he told you what you needed to hear in a way. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> why I just said, yeah, yeah, I don't feel I don't feel animosity towards a person by any stretch, but he I, it's almost like. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know I'm going to do this for my family, for myself, but I'm going to prove you wrong, dude. I, you're absolutely right. And and just like the number of folks that said to me, you know, John, your first time fund, how much are you raising? Five hundred million. Whole, John. Why don't you just focus it on one investment at a time? Why don't you raise a a venture fund and blah blah blah? I'm like, Really interesting points. Really interesting. F you. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Do I know it's hard? Yeah. Raising a first-time fund during COVID? Oh, like odds are the the odds were minuscule. I get it. I know it. Um, but but I've been through lots of uh downs before. And if 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 I took that approach. I would have failed. And it's a little bit where I, I, I see entrepreneurs doing the same thing. And I was like, I'm not going to invest in you. I want to invest in those that have a passion. I, like, wh why, why did I keep on going with Mavericks? I don't need the money. I've had a successful long career. I, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, but I, I, I have a mission to help change the future of this country. I've been on that mission 
really since about 2005 is when I really started. And I'm not stopping. And, and I had a full plan of, there was a three-phased approach, which started in 2011. And I said, I have to hit that final stage. And this is the stage that I'm at. And no matter what you throw at me, I'm still going to go because it doesn't matter the money, doesn't matter the success. It matters, do I get it done? John, I wanted to ask you about something that I, I read about, which was a moment when your wife was visiting you in the hospital and she brought you, I think, out into the garden or something. And there were a couple of your friends and colleagues who were there. And of course, this has all happened at a time when visiting people under any circumstances has been difficult, but especially if they're in a hospital or a long-term care facility, that sort of thing. But I, I gather that was a pretty big milestone and a pretty emotional moment for you. Yeah, it was. Um, and it was uh, kind of in between the COVID lockdowns. So there was, and I, I think it was around October-ish, I, I can't remember precisely, uh, where uh, seeing people was permitted. And uh, my wife took me outside um, and uh, I did see them and they saw me the, for the first time uh, in a wheelchair. And uh, I do remember uh, it was a little bit of a chilly fall day. And so I had a blanket on me, et cetera. And I think that they were all very nervous to see me for the first time because really other than my wife, no one really knew how I would be able to respond. And, you know, when I saw them and, I, it, it was almost like I never was injured, at least from their perspective. So you can see this collective sigh of relief from them and going, oh, my God, the guy is back. Um, and it was really the first time for me uh, to see my friends as well. So you're absolutely right. It was a, it was a, a godsend, I think, for, for, for both uh, folks. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, did you lose it? I mean, we're, I, I'm picturing myself in that situation, and I imagine it would be very emotional after everything you've been through for them and for you. Yeah, you know, it was tough. I mean, I'm still, it's, you're still in a, uh, like I said, I, I think this was maybe a month after the accident. So, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to react to make them feel uncomfortable. And it was more of a uh, fun fun time. And okay. we were having uh, uh, drinks and pizza and kind of like what we would do before. Not, not, I wasn't drinking alcohol, but it was, it was more, more along those lines. And, you know, it, it could have very easily got overly emotional. And I was trying to not to do that. I think they were trying not to do that. Um, so, but sure. yes, no, I'd say, uh, you know, it was more emotional for me after I left them, frankly. Um, but I was just almost relieved that in many respects, despite my state at the time, um, uh, I knew things would go back. I'll use the word normal, not the, when I say normal, it's not what it was like before but it's my new normal. Yeah. Kind of out of crisis mode, basically. Yes. Right? yes yeah. 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 
And you know, it's interesting. I I I get what you're saying because it's kind of like at at a gathering like that, it's almost like you're trying to reassure them that yes. that that everything's going to be okay and they're trying to reassure right. you that everything's going to be okay, yes. right? So yes. there's there's kind of a reinforcing that's going on there rather than an exposure to the the raw emotions, right? Yeah. If one or the other side lost it, we would have all lost it. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So how has your perspective on everything changed from nine months ago? Um, you know, I would say uh, for me, um, I would say the, the little things um, that matter um, really matter. So, you know, st- uh, going outside and feeling the, f- the sun on your skin and doing nothing but just feeling that is remarkable. And, you know, uh, even when you talk about that garden time, that was the first time I felt the sun on my face in, uh, since the accident. And it's those little things that are now my big things. Um, and I would say things that, um, you know, that I love to do, you know, lots of travel, you know, concerts, sporting events, all that sort of stuff. I loved those big things and it would get me going. And, you know, right now those things are difficult for me to do. I hope they won't be that difficult for me in the future, but, um, you know, it's difficult. And, and I discovered that, you know, I really don't miss it that much. I'm sure when it, I'm, I'm able to do it, I, I, I'll try to do what I can, but I really don't miss it. And I, I miss, you know, the, I miss the simple things of um, hearing my family, hearing my kids, I hearing my kids yell at one another, you know, doesn't even faze me. Hearing the dog, uh, you know, as opposed to being in a hospital and in hearing nothing. And then COVID hits. And then I couldn't see my kids for three months. I couldn't touch their skin. Like, let me tell you how tough that was. I touched their skin for the first time when I got back home four months later and hugged them. And I was like, you know, you talk about losing it. Holy moly. I didn't even know what I was missing until I touched it again. Like that was very, very difficult. And that's something that you know, I will treasure all the time. Wow. I really like what you said there about the little things becoming the big things. And, um, and, you know, it's interesting because you, you haven't missed any concerts or hockey games, right? (laughs) So I know I have uh, no fear of missing out. And frankly, it's kind of funny when people start, Oh my God, you know, this lockdown and stuff, dude, I'm locked down. I'm locked down in my legs and, it's actually kind of good for me because I, I haven't missed anything, but once we're out of this lockdown, it's going to be rougher on me for sure. So John, you, you very quickly, it seems made the decision that no matter what you were going full steam ahead with your new fund. Um, mm-hmm. Why was that so important to you? I know there would have been a lot of people 
who who might have been saying to you, hey, look, just, you know, push the pause button on that. You know, you you can put it on hold for six months or a year, recover, and then mm -hmm. come back to it. Why was it so important that you stick to that? Um, you know, it was it was really mission driven. Uh, you know, when I when I left Omer's to build this and and, you know, when you're having rough days from a raising capital perspective, uh, you know, I, I, I did think about that and, you know, sort of think, you know, why am I making my life so difficult? Um, you know, and do I, do I go back and, and take a job with a place or do I go and uh, get involved with a charity or, or, or what have you? And one of the advantages of not being money driven is I really wanted to do uh, what I really wanted to do. And there is this massive hole in Canada that I wanted to fix very much when, you know, 10 years ago, there was a massive hole on the venture capital landscape. And I left a very well-paid, successful career to do it. It just it's it's maybe stupidity stubbornness but it really is the passion to to fix what i set out to do and um you know raising capital for a firm there is a there there's a pattern there's a there's a uh um you know when you're on a roll to get it done and there's a timing issue I was also worried that if I waited a year, uh, perhaps too much time will pass. Uh, and, you know, all of I already knew I had a bunch of investors that were very interested. Um, and if, if I deferred it, you know, for another year, for example, I probably would have lost them. And if I lost them, the thought of then restarting again um, probably would have been, uh, you know, the, the wrong call. And, and I was recovering at a really rapid rate. And so I, I did wait um, until, uh, you know, I, I certainly left hospital before I really put the pedal on it. And, you know, I gave it a timing so that I could actually, um, uh, be ready when I'm feeling good. And I figured by the end of Q1 of 2021, I would feel good. And I, and I do. Uh, hmm. And so uh, surround yourself with an amazing team. We're in COVID. So it didn't really matter whether I was able to physically visit folks in any event. So COVID actually played like bizarrely in my favor. So you could have Zoom meetings with people instead of having to travel all over the place. And right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about your investment philosophy and what you've learned from many years of being in this space. But just before I do very quickly, that hole that you have determined exists in Canada. Can you very quickly describe what the missing element is there, what the space is? Sure. So, um, you know, I spend a uh, you know, a large part of my career investing in really one segment of the economy, which is a technology company. Now, 
10 years ago, a technology company was a classically defined technology company, software, hardware, semiconductor, et cetera, company. And there was no capital uh, that was serving that one segment of the GDP. And as, as it started getting lots of traction and lots of capital started coming, started to see another area open up. And that was the space between where a venture capital would typically invest and where a buyout private equity firm would typically invest. And it was interesting, buyout private equity firms were generally investing in the other 90% of the Canadian economy, um, and, but they were doing all control deals. So really where the Gulf, uh, and, and, and they were looking at sizable EBITDA so that they can debt leverage it. But where was the capital where you're a business in the other 90% of the Canadian GDP did not want to control transaction, did not want to go public, uh, but needed growth capital. There was not a, an issue of customer market fit. There was no technology risk. It was a business that had a bunch of customers, um, but really wanted to scale on a global basis. Hmm. And those great companies that I admired, um, they the ones that ultimately did go and raise capital raised 100% of the time in the US. And interestingly, from the same eight firms in the US, four of which I actually forwarded that deal to them because there was no Canadian uh, wow. place to, yeah. to put that. So you, were, you were sending your deal flow, your future oh, yeah, deal absolutely. flow to other, to American absolutely. firms, yeah. So again, these are these are companies that don't want to sell outright. They don't want to give up more than fifty percent of the shares, but they want funding to fuel their growth. And they're they're not so huge that they would attract the, the interest of the big big private equity firms, basically. Well, well, they or they would have not discernible EBITDA in order to debt leverage it because they right. were all they were doing is debt leveraging like crazy. Yeah. So they wanted pure capital. But the biggest thing they want the quality ones. They even didn't care about the capital so much because these are great firms. What they really cared about is, uh, is there an organization that could actually help them scale? So, right. you know, the ideal was, you know, could you, could you uh, go to Bain uh, Consulting, get the, br the brains of Bain Consulting to help you scale? Oh, and boy, it'd be great if Bain Consulting had capital. Oh my God, that's what Bain Capital is. Yes, that's the perfect firm. That's the perfect firm that I'm emulating in terms of not building a consulting firm. But where do you get lots of big brains to help you and capital to go along the way? There is nothing like that in, in Canada or certainly no one doing that on an exclusive basis. Hmm on growth equity like that. Well, good for you for making it happen. Um, so I'm interested in how you make decisions because we all make decisions uh, as people, as leaders, as business owners in our personal lives. But, but as an investor, you need to have a very clearly established method of making decisions because there's so much at stake mm -hmm. and your decisions yeah. are measurable. So yeah. what have you learned about decision-making and how do you apply that to your work? 
Um, you know, th th we do have very specific decision-making criteria, but at the end of the day, it, uh, you can make it as objective as you like. And there are some objective measures, but a lot of them are, are subjective. And, uh, you know, and a lot of the, the things, um, uh, or a lot of the mistakes that I have made have helped me avoid them again, sometimes to my own detriment, uh, because sometimes you use your past history and rule out things and then you're not realizing maybe you know you're ruling it out for the wrong reason uh so trying to avoid that but the one thing is the same is whether it's a startup whether it's a scaling company or whether it's a growth uh larger growth opportunity the the management team is 70 percent of the answer really and do they share your same values? Do you, you know, do you really trust them? Do you really believe in them? Um, it's the same thing right across the board. Yes, in the stage that they're at right now, you know, th they have a hundred or a couple of hundred million of revenues. So you don't have to worry about product market fit, uh, for example, but it's a hundred percent execution play and you still have to bet on, on the team. And, you know, one thing I always find so odd uh, in, in a lot of folks when they're looking at early stage investing, for some reason, they're trying to prove that they're smarter than the CEO or founder that they're investing in. And once they find that, they kind of conclude well i can really help them it's like dude why would you do that i want to find someone who knows the space a hundred a thousand times more than i do because i'm placing the bet on them not on myself so i find that just so bizarre um and you know at the stage that we're looking at these are folks who know their business extremely well and there's nothing that i'm going to do that's going to make me just as strong or, uh, or, or close to it. But there's things that, that I know that our team knows that they just won't ever know. And that's the stuff that will bring in on the added value uh, uh, side of the equation. Yeah. So John, I, I, I often reflect on the role of luck in my life and I've had an incredible run of good luck. I'm very fortunate. Um, you've, you've obviously had some good fortune in your life and you've, you've had some really, really bad luck in the last year, obviously. Do mm -hmm. you, do you reflect on, do you reflect on all of that? Is that something you think about in the context of everything you've been through recently? No, because I had great luck. I should have died. Every single doctor, um, including three of the four who, took care of me. These are the top doctors in the city of Toronto. They don't understand why I didn't die. And I had great luck how I didn't hit my head and get brain damage. If you saw the accident, if you saw what happened to my bike, you would just say the poor bastard. Uh, whoa, I would never wanted to see what happened. And the trauma that happened to my body, uh, it was a, an immediate death on impact. And again, when I didn't die on impact, 
the doctor's bet that I was going to die in the first 40 hours and I still wouldn't die. Well, that's, you know, that's not bad luck. Uh, you know, maybe it was carelessness, uh, not on my part, because I know exactly what I was doing uh, and I was blindsided. Maybe that's, you know, bad luck being at the wrong place at the wrong time. But I cycled four or five days a week. I had a number of close calls uh, by some folks that were absolutely careless and some folks that were being absolute jackasses uh, with cyclists, which I can never, ever understand. Um, but, but uh, you know, that good luck that I had wasn't just good luck. I was in the fittest shape of my life uh, because of COVID, in fact, and rode the most. Um, my upper body, I, I always worked out on weights two or three times a week, every week for 10 years. Uh, that's what saved me on that impact. And the amount of trauma that I had inside was so, so great that I really do think that I, uh, I was able to protect myself. And that was a hell of a lot of hard work. Yeah. You know, it may, maybe an act of God in there, but, um, uh, I, I never, ever look at it from a bad luck perspective. Wow. Yeah, you know, it. Uh, there's so much, so much in that, John. And I, what I think about is, you know, is there, there's that expression about how the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the best way to recover from a traumatic event is probably to be incredibly fit and to put the 10 yeah. years in before the event. You, you don't know when the event's going to happen, but your your fitness probably saved your life, right? Yep. Uh, the, the doctors will all tell you the exact same thing. They don't understand it, but then they said... But the fact that, you know, that I'm not also built like a cyclist, if you see my physical, you know, I was 208 pounds, uh, huge legs, um, and, and uh, I could power uh, when I go up the hills, you know, the really light guys would, would whip past me for sure. I mean, I was able to hold my own, but yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't compete on that. Um, but at the same time, if I was one of, of my fellow riders who had a very small upper body, the odds of them dying probably would have been extremely high. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I really do believe you make your own luck good and bad. And it's all in practice and, and, and training like every single, you know, thing that we do. So, John, is it fair to say that uh, I know I'm sure you have lots of things, lots of milestones ahead of you, but that your focus now is getting this fund launched and then one day getting back on a bicycle. Are those like kind of the two big goals in your life now? Yeah, I, I would rank it first of uh, 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 continuing on on my recovery. My physio is very intensive. It's every day. It's brutal. It's hard on the body. Uh, you know, you're in pain every day, but you got to fight through the pain because I, 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 I believe it's the rehab is really the path uh, for my recovery uh, and to get back, uh, you know, some elements of, of my, you know, normal life again. It's not the same, but it's my, it's my new normal. And then fitting in uh, the fund around that and surrounding myself with outstanding folks, which we have, that 
that you know I'm not able to commit the uh, same number of hours, but but I've I'm working way smarter than I did before, and staying at very strategic levels, and then having my team really being a lot of the uh, arms and legs of execution, which by the way, is not very different than I did at Omer's Ventures, but now it's way more essential. In Omer's Ventures, that was only one job that I had at Omer's. I had many roles. And it the reason why I was able to do many roles is that I surrounded myself with a great team. The difference is now is not, I'm not fitting it in with other things to do. I am fitting it in in order to get healthier. Well, John, your story is just so inspiring. And, and uh, you know, I can't say enough about how much I admire the work that you have done to get to this point. I know how hard it must be. I have had friends and family members who have been through rehab. I know how challenging it is. Um, and to do all of that and to be working at the same time and building a team and building a fund, it's just incredible so you well, have you. you have my highest level of admiration and respect <laughs> and and i am so grateful to you for sharing this inspiring story because i think it will uh really touch a lot of people so thank you for your time oh great well thank you so much mark i appreciate it what an incredible story john ruffalo i'm so inspired by john's resilience and determination I'm never going to forget what he said about feeling the sun on his face again and touching his children for the first time after the crash. I can tell you, I'm one of the many, many people who are rooting for John, not just to be successful with his new fund, but to get back on his bicycle and ride again. So once again, an enormous thank you to John Ruffalo for sharing his story on Digging Deep. If you enjoyed this episode, please review it. And please share it with others. That's going to help us produce more great episodes. And if you want to keep digging deep into topics and lessons like this, or see the show notes for this episode, or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, or read my blog, you can do all of that at letsdigdeep.com. That's letsdigdeep.com. And get ready for more great stories and powerful lessons on the next edition of Digging Deep. Thank you for listening. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.